Christians have always had this, it's like a love-hate relationship with the world. At least I, I have. I've struggled with what is the balance and what, how am I supposed to feel about my place in the world and of the world and how do I relate to this place? See, on one hand, um, you know, the, the most famous verse in the whole Bible is, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then on the other hand, there's this, this verse that we're going to look at today uh, from John. Uh, same guy, same author, writes this powerful statement and says emphatically, do not love the world or anything about the world. Don't love anything about the world. Well, which is it? How am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do? I don't know where to land with that. And, and chances are that you've probably found yourself asking the same kinds of questions from time to time, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Lord, I want to honor you. I want to give you glory. I'm supposed to love the world, and I'm supposed to hate the world. Okay, I get that, sort of. So today, we're going to look and see if we can understand a little better about what John is trying to communicate. What is he saying uh, through Scripture? Uh, and what, what can we learn that will teach us so that we can dive deeper into Christ? And that's what this whole series uh, has been about. And to do that, you know, so far we've learned uh, that, that there is deep joy uh, that God gives us. We've learned about how to walk more deeply, more obediently, and what, what happens when, when that occurs and, and our, when we're consistent with what we say and do. Uh, last week we talked about forgiveness. I think probably the biggest, most amazing principle or idea or grace in, in God's life and the cleansing that he provides uh, through, through Christ. And today we're going to talk about uh, this deep desire that God has put in us and that causes us to be anxious or even a little confused sometimes. So let's read from 1 John uh, chapter 2. And we're going to um, look at the 12th verse to the 17th verse. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world, with its lusts, is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. That's a curious passage. And he begins with this unusual sentence where he says, I write to you, dear children. And it's very affectionate. Remember, John's the last guy standing, right? Oldest Christian around. Uh, he knew Jesus. He was actually there, you know, and he's the only one left from that generation. And he's pushing the gospel into a new generation where there are some questions. And there's second and third generation people who are going, well, we, don't, we didn't actually meet Jesus like you. And we didn't see the things that you saw and heard the things that you heard. Uh, how do we know? It just, we just want to make sure this is real, right? And he's the guy and we're on the, we're on the right path. So John is saying, look, I was there. I'm the last eyewitness, and yes, this is all exactly that. And, and, he, and he writes this, and he said, and so he calls them dear children. He's the, probably the only fellow there who's got that right, you know, that he can say that without it sounding patronizing or, you know, arrogant. He just says, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on the account of his name. And then he goes on to address uh, fathers, young men, and, you know, these, these groups of people. And he says something. He finds something to affirm in each one of those groups. As he goes along, he has something kind of nice to say. And then he repeats that cycle all over again. And he, and he, and he, and he says it over. There's a lot of different translations and there are different interpretations about what is he talking about, what's going on here, who is it that he's talking to. Uh, one obvious you know, uh, spin on that could be, well, he's obviously talking about people at different seasons of their life. He's talking about young people, you know, and... Uh, students, and he's talking about people in the middle of their life, and he's talking about older people, and it's just chronological, and he's talking about that. And that could be, that could be what he's talking about, but I, I think that this is sort of a, uh, it's a straightforward letter, and maybe what John's talking about, especially in the second chapter, he's given this personal connection. You know, he's been, he's been real hard-hitting so far, right? He's just bump, 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 you know, all along the way. Uh, and I think he stops here and goes, hey, you guys know I like you, right? You're like my kids. I mean, he just kind of stops and affirms them. And he reminds this church, I have a deep love for you. And everything I say and do, it's, it, it's with affection and it's because I care about you. And I want to affirm everything that God's doing in your life. And these three groups, these children, these fathers and young men most likely refer to these three spiritual stages uh, of John's readers. People that are at different places in their life spiritually. There are some new believers. They're still rejoicing in the fact their forgiveness, you know, that, that, that that's done, and uh, there's this, this new life. There are some seasoned believers. They're kind of mature in their knowledge of the Lord. They've been around the block a time or two, not their first rodeo spiritually. And then there's some others who are just hitting their stride as followers of Christ. They've been a Christian for a while. They're not super mature. They haven't been there. You know, some of you have been believers since you were a little girl, uh, since you were a teenage guy, and you think, I mean, I've been a Christian for so long. Some of you are not new Christians, but you're not there yet. You're kind of in between, you know, that middle place. You think, I've been walking with the Lord for five or six years now. I've been a Christian for 10 years, and I'm still learning. I'm not there, but, boy, I've come a long way. I've come a long way. So John's talking 
uh, I think, to those groups. And that's a beautiful thing because certainly all three of those groups are represented with us today. We're all of us at some place. Uh, there are those who are new to the faith and you're full of curiosity, uh, you know, and, and, and you're asking a lot of those questions. I remember asking, um, what does this mean or where is that in the Bible or, you know, and just not, not knowing a lot of that. There are some who've been following Christ for a lifetime you're still eager to grow. And there's some that you're, you feel like you're right in the middle of this season of your life where you're making a difference. There, there's an impact there. You're kind of, you know, maybe at the peak of things right now in your, in your ministry. So we kind of understand. We, we get that. And here's John sitting down and looking us right in the eye. And he's telling us, I love you. And I'm so proud of you. And I have something very important I need to share with you at this place in your journey. And that's what this passage is about. And in verse 15, he says, Do not love the world. Don't love anything in the world. And he says, If you love the world, and literally you could translate this, since some of you are just going on loving the world all the time, since that's happening, here's the deal. The love of the Father, not in you kidding yourself, you're kidding other people, you're playing the game, you got the church thing going, and you figured out how to imitate that, but uh, really, the love of the Father's not in you. It's a stern warning, and it's one of the relatively few times, uh, and let me just get geeky on you for a minute, okay? It's one of the few times that John uses an imperative mode in his writings, He's kind of a nice guy. He's not real bossy. And, 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 he, and he doesn't say things in a real stern way too much. But in this place, he does. And imperative mode is when you're speaking as if you're giving a command. Every parent in the room, every child in the room knows what that's like, right? You know the difference between dad's voice at this moment and when dad says it with this tone and he says it like that. Okay, now we're, we, it's, that's imperative. Uh, and that's exactly the way this is, this is written. Uh, to help you appreciate the significance of that, uh, if I think about the book of James, which is also five chapters long, James uses the imperative mode 35 times. I probably wouldn't have wanted to go to the game with James or to hang out with James. I mean, he would be that guy sitting in nailing going, I can't believe you! I mean, he would be yelling at the coaches, yelling at the players, at a guy sitting in front of me yesterday. You know, I just... and. God is good in that he spreads obnoxious people around, you know, around us. But, um, but, but for some reason, they always find me. They're always like, where's Dan? Yeah, yeah, we got to sit close to him. Yeah. And, and, and this one guy, and he's just, he knows everything about UT. He knows everything about football. He knows everything about how to come and to share that information, being just a little drunk, you know, and, and, and getting that across. And he... And, he, and he's one of those that'll say something and then turn around and look at you like, right? And there's all these Cincinnati people around you going, who's this guy? This, you know, we're like, we, we're not with him, you know. James would be kind of a, and James is a lovely man. I mean, he, he loved Jesus and he was martyred for Christ, you know, and, and all these things. But he didn't pull any punches. He was pretty much like, hey, buddy, what's up, you know. Um, John only does this, he uses the imperative mode about 15 times. He's such a nice guy. He just, he doesn't get tough that often, but he does right here. And this is one of those moments where, where John goes, hey, pay attention. Stop loving the world. 
Knock it off. Quit it. He's serious. He's serious here. The thing I wondered about, and I, can rem- I remember the first time reading this, because uh, when I began to walk with Christ, uh, the guy who was helping me, was kind of mentoring me, said, read John, and read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is kind of where he got me started, and maybe that's why I had this lifelong love of John's writings, and it's one of my favorite go-to places in Scripture. But I didn't understand then, and maybe you don't understand, what exactly does he mean by the world? The world. He's using a Greek word, cosmos, here, which generally has two different meanings. Uh, in, in one sense, it could be the created world, the planet, the trees, the, the sky, the, the rocks, the streams, the creatures in the world, people, human beings of the world. That's, you can say that's all what he's talking about. And in another sense, there's another place where, you know, the Bible makes it really clear that what we're talking about is not the created world. Uh, God pronounced that good, 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 very good. I mean, God liked that. God still likes that. God still loves the world. That's not what he's talking about. So here when he says, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's not referring to the earth itself or the human race. Don't love people anymore. Sometimes the word cosmos is, is used to describe the sinful part of world. The system. This earthly system, this matrix that we live in. The values and the beliefs and the behaviors that are in opposition to God and in opposition to God's purposes and his plan for people. So John uses this word uh, this way a couple of other times in this letter, and we'll get to that. In chapter 4, verse 3, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world system. He's already infiltrated that. That, that. that presence, that thought, that way of approaching spiritual things, that's already happening. In chapter 5, verse 19, he says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He's the whole world's already being dominated by this evil presence. So when John uses the word world in this sense, he's referring to this way of life that ignores God, ignores his word, ignores God's rule over us. The point that John wants to make is that you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. He said, if you love the world, if you try to do that, when you attempt to do that, the love of the Father is not in you. In other words, you can't have your, your feet in both worlds at the same time. You can't do that. And I think, I think this is what frustrates people uh, with Christians sometimes. I don't think it's a lot of our views or beliefs when we say, well, you know, you can think this is kind of wacky, but we believe Jesus was born to a virgin. We believe he died on the cross. We believe he arose from our, for our sins. We think that he was deity. Uh, sometimes people go, wow, that's really interesting. I don't know if I believe that. You know what bugs people? is when we say we believe these things, and this is where I stand, but then we act different from that. I rarely get complaints. I'm not coming to your church. I don't want to worship God. 
because you guys are so sincere, you're so wacky, you're just weird, you just really believe these things. That just knocks me out, how, how sincere you people are. I, I don't hear that very often. What I hear is this. You know why I won't come? You know why I'm not interested? Because you say this, but then I see your folks. I see you guys. When you're out, I've seen you be rude in the restaurant to the server. I've seen you uh, on Market Square. I've seen you in the old city on Friday nights. I'm thinking, what? You're the one who believes that? That's confusing to us. And for some of you, that kept you away from Christ longer than it should have. And that's what John's dealing with. He's saying for you to try to stand in both places is... It's sort of like, have you ever been on a dock and you've untied a boat, a canoe or something, and so you've got one foot on and you put one foot on the boat? Have you ever done that? I think at some point, everybody, and you're thinking, okay, I've got to make a real big decision really fast here. And you, and you get further apart and you're thinking, okay, I've really got to make a decision, boat or dock, boat or dock, boat or dock. And that's what John's saying. You can't stay that way. You've got to choose. You've got to get on the dock or get in the boat. And that's what he's telling his people. And we've all known people who've tried to live in both. You can't say, I love God. I want the deep life he offers. I want to go down deep. But I also am kind of attracted. I'm feeling this pull over here to embracing the sinful values of my friends, the lifestyles of the world, the things that are just kind of pull at me because they're just incredibly cool or fun or well, whatever reason, that's our dilemma. And we've all known people. In fact, I'll say we've all been people. I've been people <laughs> who've tried to do that at times. And this is one of those messages I can speak to you so honestly and so firsthand experience, you know, um, been there. It, it's like trying to have you know, one and one, and being both, and going in two different directions at once. So how do you know? How do I know? Do I love the world? God, am I loving you, or am I loving the world? I don't know. And, and for some of you, that's real clear, because maybe you were brought up in a home where the rules were very defined. Maybe it was a Christian home. Maybe it was just a moral home. Uh, maybe it was even a legalistic home, and you got that. You knew that's bad, that's good. That's bad, that's good. I was kind of raised in a home where that was, that was there. We were like good people to some degree, but there was no clear line. And so when I became a follower of Christ and I began to try to step deeper into Jesus, I'd go, uh, and I would ask my friends, and then it became really subjective, and I could remember even my friends going, oh, you didn't tell him right. I'd say, is this wrong? Can I do this, or is this wrong? And one guy would say, no, you can't do that. You've got to stop doing that. And the other one would go, I don't think it's that big a deal, and why are you just, why? It's not going to hurt. And I thought, they don't even know for sure. And have walked, you know, a, a long way going, uh, Lord, I'm kind of nervous because I want to bring you glory, and I don't want to mess up. But at the same time, I don't want to live under this bondage, and I don't want to create a whole page of rules that I'm, I'm always getting out and going, uh, hang on, let me look that one up because I'm not sure. Yeah, okay, I can go. I can do that. You know, I, I thought, God, how do I figure that out? How do I know if I love the world? Well, in verse 16, he says, For everything in the world, oh, that's pretty inclusive, <laughs> the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
There's a lot of different translations, probably as many different Bibles, because you can say it in different ways and still be correct when you look at this verse. I kind of like the way the old King James Version puts it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's easy and to the point. Whatever translation works for you, I'm, I'm great with that. But John is identifying three worldly desires that are characteristic of a worldly way of seeing life and of, of living and experiencing, experiencing that life. These were once explained to me, and I don't know where I picked these up. I would document that, but I, I've, just, I've had this for a long time in my head. These were explained to me as the desires to do, to have, and to be. To do, to have, and to be. I've never forgotten that. The first is the desire to do. And that's that King James you know, describes as the lust of the flesh. Doesn't that just sound like your mother? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like grandpa saying that's lust of the flesh? You know, and you just felt so bad all of a sudden. Uh, we talk about the word lust uh, because it actually applies to all three of these desires. In the Greek language, let me tell you, you think, well, what is lust? Is that like always a bad thing or is it, what, what does that mean? Lust is, it's actually, it's kind of cool because it's a compound word. It, it takes the normal word for desire and it puts a prefix on it that intensifies it. It takes it from desire to super desire. It takes this from desire to hyper desire. It bumps it up. And the way lust works is that it starts with a healthy desire. Something that God wired into you that you don't have to be ashamed of, you don't have to be embarrassed about. It's, it's the way he created us. But then it's taken to an unhealthy extreme. You know, we take this desire and we let it kind of lead us to the next place. The other night I had, had kind of a long day and I was in and out a lot. And I was, it's like I had my first thing at 7 in the morning and my last thing at 7 at night. And so toward the end of the day, I start uh, becoming Mr. Nutrition Expert, and, you know, and, I, and I'm figuring out, oh, I probably need to eat something now. I probably need to eat some carbs, and I need to eat this. You know? And so I start snacking around 5 or 6 o'clock, you know, and I've eaten a couple of times, but I haven't really eaten a meal. It's like cheese and crackers, you know, that kind of stuff, but I can eat a lot of cheese and crackers. All right? I can eat like a whole stick of sharp cheddar, yeah, and I'm like, yeah, okay. That's a good snack. I feel pretty good. A lot of dairy. Yeah, I think I'll drink a big glass of milk with that just to get in that, that stupor kind of groove, you know, where you're like this. So I did that. Then a little later, I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to eat some more. I'm gonna, Oh, ooh, we have pimento cheese. So I eat more cheese and bread, and, and, I, and I eat another thing. And then later, I decide, you know, hey, it's been a long time, and it's like 9 o'clock, and um, I'm thinking... What do you eat at 9 o'clock? It's, it's always one of two things. Yeah, ice cream or a bowl of cereal. Um, we had run out of ice cream, so I went for the bowl of cereal. So now, more dairy. Yeah. So I, I, I eat a bowl of cereal, and I'm sitting there, and we're watching the game. It was, we're watching the, the New Orleans Green Bay game, and I'm, I'm watching that, and I'm pulling for all the guys on my fantasy team, which is pretty much the entire Saints team. And... Um, and, and I'm, when I'm watching that, you know, and, and my son comes in. He gets off work. He works next to, I always say Annie M. It's kind of a family joke, but uh, Aunt Annie's pretzels. He can get them for like a buck a piece when they close and they're going to throw them away. He goes, hey, I'll buy all those from you. So he walks in, 
you know, with, with pretzels. And I'm going like, yeah, baby. <laughs> oh, they're still warm. I think, well, what am I going to do? I ate a pretzel. And, you know, they're as big as your head. They're just, they're, oh. So now it's like 1030 at night. And I, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go lie down. <laughs> Somebody help me up the stairs. I feel, you see, what started off is a desire that God gave me. God said, Dan, it's okay for you to be hungry. It's okay for you to eat. I freed you up. And I even mentioned that specifically several times in Scripture. And I even tell you, you can eat whatever you want to eat. You know, I'm not even going to lock you down and say this, this, and that. No, just eat and you're okay. But I don't think he meant what I thought he meant the other night. <laughs> I don't think I'm as freed up as he wanted me to be. You know, I, and I'm just, I'm lying in bed and... I'm just groaning, I'm moaning, and he can't get comfortable. And you know, you know, those of you who've ever had a baby, you know what that's like. Well, this was a similar thing, except I'm having a pretzel, and I'm having, you know, I'm, I just feel awful, and I can't sleep, and I'm just can't. And, and Kathy's so smug, she's so righteous. Well, you just kept eating all night. What did you expect, you know? And I think, oh, be sympathetic, be nice. It's, what time is it? And, you know, and I, it, it's just that miserable thing. And that's the way we do, and we do that in all these different areas of our life. What starts as a natural thing, as, as a beautiful thing, as a thing that God intended, and it spins out of control in a bad direction. That's the way this works. The word flesh refers to the sensual side of our nature. The sensual side. You know, we could label this, we could label flesh as the, 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 the pleasure center you know, of, of who we are. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with sensuality. In his wisdom and his love, God gave us taste buds and eardrums and nerve endings and you know, everything so that we could experience the world in a physical way. We're physical people. Uh, and, and that's okay. But this crazy thing that happens is when we don't experience it as God intended, when the world takes those desires and it twists them into something that they were never meant to be. And then trouble comes because we've crossed this line and it's sin. And when the pursuit of pleasure takes over your life and when it drives us, when that's what fuels us to, to do things that are hurtful to ourselves, that are hurtful to other people, that are hurtful to society, uh, something has, has gone wrong. And it eclipses our love for the Father because we've just loved the world more. And the second you know, worldly desire that John identifies for us is this desire to have. And King James puts it, the lust of the eyes. And I think this desire is not so much toward sensation and experience and, oh, could you believe the rush we got from that? And it's not about that so much as it is material things, these objects, stuff. The world tells us, you need to have that. And this desire for possessions. If you ever think, you know, why is it that we want, I want that. I want that. 
What's the release date of the next phone? What's, I think I'll Google that every day to get the latest rumor, you know? And when is that? And oh, would you look at that? And, you know, and this, this thing in us. And I want to, I want to say up front, uh, there's nothing wrong with material things. Right? I'm not going to try to load you down with false guilt, whether it's clothes or houses or toys or gadgets or tools or whatever it is. Uh, if God provides the resources for them, then bless you. You know, the, the Bible never condemns anybody for having stuff. We meet plenty of wealthy, godly people all throughout Scripture. In fact, some of Jesus' friends, I mean, some of people he hung out with were wealthy uh, guys. Uh, there were people who were rich, and he goes, yeah, yeah, and, and that's okay. It's when you decide that you have to have a particular thing. You know that feeling? You know that buzz of ownership when you're waiting every day for the Amazon box or whatever it is? You, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and you've spent ridiculous amounts of money to get it. And you justified it and you kept figuring it out. And then you got reckless. Have you ever gone to buy a car and this is your budget and these are the options that you want? And then you saw... Oh, my goodness. Okay, we could get that because you know what? If I do the payments, and you, and you start playing that game. You do it with houses. You do it with, with a, a hundred other things. That's when John is saying something is beginning to, to spin away, and it's, and it's getting dangerous because you want that because your friends have that, and you've got to have it too. You want that because the television tells you that you've got to have that. And, and, and that this desire has given away to lust. And having it, whatever it is, has become now more important than having God. This third worldly desire is the desire to be. And again, King James describes it as the pride of life. And this is that pursuit of success and achievement and recognition, you know, so that we, we have this thing called pride. And there's nothing wrong with taking pride in a job well done. I'm not talking about that. Again, it's the same word, but that has a little different meaning. You know, feeling good about when you achieve some kind of a milestone, you know, you make a great grade or something goes well and you kind of, you get a little affirmation from your friends. Uh, that's, that's okay. God placed within us a desire to pursue excellence, to make an impact, to have accomplishments. When people come over and say, oh, that's your trophy? Oh, what is that? Eighth grade soccer. Wow, you've hung on to that for a long time. Yeah, there I was on the other end of the field. And you know, you think, whoa, you're 30. <laughs> we don't want to... <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, I remember it, you know. A couple of weeks ago, uh, playing softball, and I hit a home run. And I tried to brag without bragging about it, you know, for a long time. Yeah, listen, don't, don't, don't even talk about that home run again. I'm so embarrassed. And, but I drove home feeling pretty good. You know, it was a good night, beautiful weather. I'm going home going, yeah, I hit a home run. I'm still, I'm like the oldest guy on the team by 20 years, except for Joe, who's 10 years older than me. And, um, <laughs> but no, he's not. Uh, but, you know, and I'm, I'm driving home feeling pretty good about that. Well, last week, I did something that it's hard to do in church league softball. It's hard to do what I did in slow pitch softball. 
I struck out. <laughs> oh, you know, and you try to do, you know how you watch the bigs and you strike and you look back at the ump like, what? What are you saying? Hey, Blue! You know, and he's like, sit down, you're just making it worse. You know? <laughs> I'm so embarrassed, and I think probably nobody noticed. But I go to my dugout, and nobody looks at me. They're all like, hey. It's okay, you'll get them next time. Hey, and all those things you say to like little league guys who aren't very good. The next day I got to work and I said, man, I had a bad night last night. And Kevin said, yeah, I know, Daniel told me. <laughs> what? Talking about it? Are people talking about it? Yeah. Yeah, you struck out. <laughs> Church league softball. So full of shame. And the idea is when that, you know, when you live your life from accomplishment to accomplishment or from failure to failure, and that's how you define yourself. And that's how you get your butt. That's how, you know, that's what throws you into despair or into ecstasy. You know, and you think, ah, it's, it's who I am and what I've achieved. And does everybody see me and know this? Or I don't want you to know that. So I'm going to try desperately to cover this up. John said, you know what? You're in love with the world. You're always chasing something. You always want to be somebody. And that has become weirdly, intensely, personally important to you. You try to pretend like it's not, but your soul is in danger because you're in love with the world. Maybe you didn't get that. Maybe you thought, no, that's, that's not it. That's, yeah, it kind of is. And what we think about you has become everything. Okay, chances are one of these three poses, one of these places is a particular problem for you. It's pleasure, it's possessions, or it's pride. And when any of these begin to demand more time or money or attention that rightfully belongs to God. You know, when you stop and think, wow, I can't tithe because that just costs too much. I can't give to this mission project. I can't do those. But I got all the toys. Somehow I could afford the next latest and greatest. Something... In fact, God says in Malachi, you're robbing me. You steal from me when you do that. When these things tempt you to compromise your convictions, when you start cutting corners, when you start looking away, and you start neglecting people and pursuits that are important, then you're falling in love with the world. You may not have felt that because it's not emotional like falling in love with another person, but that's what's happening to you. And it's only a matter of time before you end up throwing uh, yourself towards one of those things instead of towards God. And in the process, you're going to lose yourself and you're going to lose your relationship with God. And you're going to show up one day and you're going to say, I just don't feel as close to God as I used to. I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't feel. I'm just not there. It's because you started loving the world. Just little bit by little bit. Let me ask you something. This is personal, but you don't have to answer it out loud or anything. So um, if you had to identify the desire that you struggle with, what, what's the one that, what's 
the one that bugs you the most? What are you fighting with right now? I mean, what would it be? Which of these three? Look at verse 17. He says, The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. That's a kind of, what do you mean by that? Well, the problem with pleasure, possessions, and pride isn't so much that they're always wrong and that they're always, you know, this, you can just look at it and tell how evil it is. It usually doesn't unfold that way. It's just that they're not enough. Just after a while, it doesn't satisfy. We went to the theater the other night to watch a movie, and we do the bucket thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Greatest invention ever. Two feet, you buy a bucket at the first of the year. I think, I don't know, all the, I know Carmike does it. They give me a little kickback when I mention this publicly. But uh, you buy a bucket, and then every time you go in, it's two fifty to refill it first time. And then I think it's free while you're there the second time. So we, we're such, <laughs> you wouldn't believe how much popcorn we've had. Uh, but we go in, and we get it, and we load it up, and we dump it out, and, you know, and we go fill it again. And I said, you know, we're just going to eat. And we go about dinner time, and I just eat popcorn. I cannot stop. I mean, I've been in programs. I have been in popcorn recovery, and I've done everything I know to do. I just can't. You put that shaky stuff on. Uh, I just, I'm easy. I'm just so easy. You know, and it's just, uh, we've got popcorn. I'm okay. Uh, you know, and, and I sit there. I eat, and I eat, and I eat. And when I'm done, you know this feeling of where you're done, and it's kind of like you're full, but you're not satisfied? Do you know that feeling when you've eaten a whole bag of potato chips? Are you hungry? No? Yeah? No? <laughs> I can't eat, but I'm not hungry. You know, it's that. That's what the world does to you. It just doesn't satisfy. You're just full of this junk. You're just full of this junk. Pleasure is so fleeting. It just doesn't last very long. I had a, a, my cousin's husband went skydiving a couple of weeks ago, and he said, oh, it was just such a rush. We said, how long did it last? I said, I want to do that. It's one of the things I haven't done. I want to do that. He said, about a minute. I thought, well, we had this conversation for half an hour about something that took one minute to, you know, and that's the way pleasure is. Possessions lose their value. Remember the first time you opened that computer and you thought, oh, whoa, look at this. Look what it'll do. Look at that screen. And a couple years later, you thought, I don't want that one anymore. I want that. Now it won't do. It's not. It, that's just the way of things. And earthly accomplishments, after a while, it's forgotten. Nobody cares. I set two high school track records. And I remember going back like the next year, and I was with a friend who didn't go to that school, and I casually walked through the gym where they put all the records up, and you know what I was going to do. I was going to say, oh, oh no, I can't believe it. What? Oh, they still got my record up there. This is, oh, I didn't mean for you to see that. No, that's exactly what I meant for him to see and why I brought him into the gym. But my name was painted over. <laughs> and some young kid, some punk who took my record, you know, nobody cares after a while. You get it? just doesn't last. It's too shallow. It cannot satisfy the deepest desires of your heart, no matter what you throw at it, because it's, it's not just pleasure that you, your heart really wants, it's joy. It's something deeper and, and stronger. We don't need just more stuff 
if I had this, if I had that, if I had that couch instead of my couch, and you know, and you just go on and on. But it's not the possessions that your heart's looking for, it's contentment. It's contentment. That's what you really want. And it's not just achievements, it's not just the accolades and the the trophies and the plaques on the wall and the, the promotions and the degrees. You do that all day. It's not the achievement, it's the significance that your heart really wants. And these things can only be found ultimately and eternally in Jesus Christ. And that's why John says the one who does the will of God lasts forever. I love, I love to read C.S. Lewis, and I love the way he put this in his little book, The Weight of Glory. He was trying to figure out a way to describe this very thing that we're talking about, and he said it like this. It is the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune that we have not heard, news from a far country that we have never visited. God, that's it. It's the longing for every good and perfect thing all at once. God, it's this this desire in my heart for you, for your kingdom, until that desire is met, all this other stuff. You know, Mick Jagger got this part right. He said, we try and we try and we try. We can't get no satisfaction. And I've talked to brilliant people who have done incredibly successful things. I've talked to folks who have lost it all. and You know, all the way between this place and all the things that are in it are never going to satisfy you. It's not going to work. Because earthly pleasure, possession, and achievement cannot. It's it's unable to satisfy this deep longing of our soul. We sang, uh, sang a song a moment ago that reflects this statement by Augustine. And it says this. The human heart was made for God. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. That would be a pretty good epitaph for my tombstone. Because <laughs> that is the story of my life. I have found rest only in Him. And it's the only place you will find that. And once that desire is satisfied, once you have turned to God and aligned yourself with His goodness and His eternal purpose uh, for your life, then you can experience in a healthy, balanced way all those earthly things, you know, the way they were meant to be experienced under this banner, this lordship of this relationship with him. John wraps it up and says, the world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So his message for us this week seems to be this. You know you're diving deep. You want life in Jesus more than you want all that this world has to offer. When I was getting ready, this, that reminded me, and I, I wrote that, and I thought, that sounds familiar to me. And I remembered, I know where I got that. Maybe you do too, some, especially some of you old-timers. It's from this song. It says, I would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I would rather have Jesus than houses or lands 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. Take it from a guy who has personal experience in this. I would not trade one day I have with God for thousands away from him. What about you? Have you purposefully or accidentally somewhere along the way fallen in love with the world? Is that true of you? Would you rather have Jesus and the life that he authors than any earthly pleasure, possession, or accomplishment? If so, I would like to invite you today to break up with the world. Say, this has tugged me out of the, off the path. This has pulled me in a direction. I'm not diving deep. I'm swimming shallow. I'm paddling around on the surface because this thing got me. I'm asking you today, break up with it. I mean, that's the way I approached it because my life with Christ is, seems to have this romantic kind of a trapping or feel to it. And I thought, this thing is what stole my heart, so what do I do? i got to break up with it. And so I just say that this thing, I'm sorry, it's not you, it's me. You know, use all the cliches you want to use, you know. It's, we, can still, no, we can't even be friends, actually, uh, but uh, I never want to see you again. Just break up with it and do it right now. Don't go home and think about it and rationalize and figure out ways. And, you know, don't do, you've done all that and where's it got you? Just do it right now. Break up with it right now. Would you stand with me? And we're going to have a moment to give you that opportunity. And you can do it right where you are, right where you're standing. Um, if you like, um, you want to come and kneel and just put it right here. And even just symbolically say, we're going to put this right here. And God, I'm just going to give this to you. And I'm going to walk away for it. I want to love you more. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for loving us. Uh, and I, I, I so am fascinated by the idea that it's not just the world like you love everybody in mass, but it's all of us within it specifically. And you love me. That's amazing. And I thank you for that. We ask for your grace today. Give us courage. Give us strength to break up with the thing of this world that's pulling us away from you. We give you our heart again today with no compromise. In Jesus' name, set us free.